This is a recording of a sermon from Light Church in San Diego, California. For more information, please visit lightsandiego.com. And um, so I'm really excited that you're here with us tonight. If you haven't had a chance to hear the other messages, you can always go back and listen to the podcast and kind of get caught up. But the idea is that as a community, we would move forward, uh, maybe not knowing everything, but the one thing we would have in common is we understand that there is a redemptive story that God is telling. We play a role in that story. And at the very center of it, the climax of that story, are you ready for it, is Jesus. And so tonight is going to be all about Jesus. It's going to be all about the gospel. The gospel just is a fancy way of saying good news about Jesus. It's the announcement that Jesus is, in fact, the king. He's the answer to the conflict. He's the hope to their desperation. And so tonight what we're going to be doing is rather than uh, kind of looking kind of at a micro level, we're going to actually take a step back, and we're going to kind of fly higher than that at kind of a macro level as far as what, how does Jesus fit into the big God story that is being told? Uh, because the reality is oftentimes uh, when, I, if I were just to ask you um, in a coffee shop or on, if I met you, in, you know, walking down the street and say, hey, what's, what's the gospel? What is the you know, what is Jesus all about? Chances are it goes something like this. We only know he was, he was born and he died on the cross and he rose again and, you know, and he, you know, he paid the penalty for our sin. And all of those things are incredibly true and important. But what's so funny is we oftentimes start right in the immediate moment of what Jesus' life was, but we forget that Jesus' life fell in the middle of a bigger story that God was telling and that Jesus was never God's plan B. He was always God's plan A. And our hope tonight is if we kind of take a, a higher look at what's being told, that we can kind of have a better grasp and a more vivid view of what God has been doing from the beginning of creation. And the next we could talk about what is he going to be doing at the end of the story? What's the resolution to this story? So you guys ready? You guys ready? I mean, we're, we're like, this is like fire hose tonight, okay? We're like going places tonight. It's going to be fun. But you guys got to stick with me. Take some notes. If you have your Bible, you guys can uh, kind of follow along that way. But we are going to be covering a lot of ground. But the idea is not to cover every detail, but what is the big picture of what God is doing? Because so oftentimes we just see those small things. Matter of fact, let me read this quote by N.T. Wright, who's this phenomenal theologian and pastor. He says this, the gospel is a kaleidoscope. It is multidimensional. It is symphonic. For many of us, we only see in black and white, or we see only two dimensions, or we only hear one melody. It is important to allow the depth of the gospel to continue to reveal new colors, multiple dimensions, symphonies, and harmonies to give us a clearer picture of the gospel. And so one of the things that uh, we need to take a better look at as 2018 Westerners, Southern California people who may or may not have some idea of who Jesus is, is that the Old Testament and the New Testament comprise the Bible, if you're new to the Bible. And the Old Testament really is a story of Israel, right? It's, it's this following and tracking this nation and how it's birthed and developed and the conflict it finds itself in. And the New Testament really is this new covenant, this new story where Jesus shows up on the scene. 
And what Christians believe and some Jews believe is that Jesus was the answer, was the resolution to the story of the Old Testament. They had a word for that. It was called Messiah, the promised one, the one that was to come and make everything right. And so, but it's funny because in... There are four biographies of Jesus at the beginning of the New Testament. There's Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And three of the four Gospels begin talking about the Old Testament. That's why we spend the last four or five weeks in the Old Testament just to get to Jesus. Because I'm convinced if we don't understand how he fits in the Old Testament, then we're looking at Jesus in black and white, in two dimensions, not three-dimensional. We're missing out on the beauty that's to be had if we can understand these bigger concepts that are going on. And so Matthew, Matthew 1.1 says this, The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham, the, the Greek literally translates, that where we kind of read it is, right, the book of the genealogy, really is talking about the word of the new genesis. This is a new genesis. This is a new start. And it ties Jesus Christ to David, the king, right, the greatest king Israel ever had, and to Abraham, the father of the entire nation. This is a bigger story that's being told. Mark, which is probably the first gospel that was written, starts his like this. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet. The very first thing Mark establishes is this story is anchored hundreds of years ago. He doesn't just start talking about Bethlehem and shepherds and sheep. He starts talking about this is a story that has been being told, that has been building for centuries John's gospel says this, in the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Do you catch those words? In the beginning, he's retelling Genesis. And so all three of the four authors begin their biographies of Jesus talking about this is so much bigger than anything we could have imagined. This is the story of God. And, and so one of the things I would just kind of to illustrate why this is important is I wanted to show a, an art piece that we have hanging in our house. So this is an art piece that we, uh, I commissioned our good friend Kara King to make. Uh, Nate and Kara have helped us plant this church, and they're phenomenal. Nate was drumming tonight. Uh, anything that looks nice in our church is probably because Kara touched it. Um, so she made this art piece, and so uh, this is a, a piece I had commissioned for our 10-year anniversary. And so just a, as a little exercise, a little game, I, I want to just ask you a question. When you see this, what, comes, what words come to your mind? What, do you, what are you seeing? And, and if you know what it is, don't be a spoiler, you know. But for those of you, this is the first time you've seen this painting. What are you seeing? Just come on, help me out. Squares. What else? Colors. What else? Minecraft. Thank you. What else? Right? Uh, did, do anyone like to enjoy this piece of art? Yeah? Kara's listening to the podcast probably right now, so you guys got to speak up. Okay? Yeah, thank you. <laughs> What's amazing, so I sent uh, Kara a picture that I wanted her to do, and what she did, she, she pixelated it, and, and she kept making the pixels bigger and bigger and bigger. And she actually handmade every one of these colors. Wow. Yeah. So this is taking, like, time, right? So we have this painting, painting in our house. And I love because everyone walks in. They're like, I love that painting. I'm like, me too. They're like, what is it? And, um, and I begin to start telling them this story. Because 
by itself, this is a beautiful piece of art. It's gorgeous. There's colors and there's symmetry and there's effort and there's beauty and, and different things going on here. And it draws you in. But then I begin to start telling them that this picture is actually this picture. If you look at the screen over here, it's a picture of um, Jen and her dad on our wedding day. And the reason I had this picture commissioned to be turned into a piece of art, do you guys kind of see it? Is because Jen's dad is maybe the most significant person that ever was in her life, and he passed away um, eight or nine years ago. And it was one of the hardest seasons of our life, and I love this picture because you see the joy and the love and the connectivity they have. And so as much as I think this is just a cool piece of art, this is so much more than a cool piece of art. This art tells a story. It reminds me of my wedding day. It reminds me, this is literally the first moment I saw Jen on our wedding day. I remember how I feel when I see this painting. I remember that sense in my heart of like, there's my bride. Jen remembers holding onto her dad's arm as she walks down the aisle 11 and a half years ago. This painting is so much more than squares. And my fear is that as a pastor, is that we may be reading the same Bible and hearing the same stories, but when we think of Jesus, when we think of the cross, when we think of his life, all we do is say, that's nice, and we miss it. We miss that there's a story behind it. There's meaning and significance behind that the the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus is the most significant, beautiful moment in all of human history. But it doesn't look like that if you glance at it for a second, only in a moment. It only makes sense when you see it in the broader story of God. So I'm going I'm to do my best right now to have a little exercise. I'm, I'm gonna, what I'm going to do is I'm going to help paint a picture of what the Old Testament is. We've been spending the last four or five weeks talking about this. But in the next probably two or three minutes, we're going to just draw a picture just to help us visualize this is what's happening in this role. I love what Scott McKnight says. It says, we have reduced the gospel to only the plan of salvation rather than to see Jesus as the climax of the story of Israel. And so this is, um, and so stick with me here, but let's travel together back in time and let's begin to retell. This is what, this, this is the climax. Jesus didn't just show up out of nowhere. This is a story that's being told. And the story began with God. And God spoke and there was light He spoke and there was life, there's plants, and at the climax of his creation, the crescendo of his creation, he creates man and woman, and and he gives them this command. He says, I want you to have dominion over the earth. This is kingdom, domain is kingdom language. And so at the very beginning of creation, we see something called the kingdom of of God. And in this kingdom is shalom. We've talked about this. It's peace. Everything is in its right order. There's beauty and significance. There's no shame. There's no sickness. There's no death. But something tragic happens when we decide as humanity that we would like to define what good is. We don't want to trust and put our faith in what God says. And we partake and have continued to partake in 
rebellion against God. And what that happened is we created the fall. And in that moment, we see a severing of God's perfect presence and human flourishing. And this is where the story, this is kind of where we find ourselves in the very first three chapters of Scripture. But what's incredible is the intent and the setting of God never changed. He always wanted us to be in perfect union with him. So what he starts doing is he starts promising himself to us. And so he starts having these covenants with us, right? That's a rainbow. Uh, and then this guy named, named Abraham comes along, right? And then he's, and he's a shepherd and, and God promises him, Abraham, I'm going to make a nation out of you because an individual is not capable of creating this. So I'm going to create a nation. I promise myself to you. And out of that promise, what we see is a nation's birth. And he gives them his heart. He gives them his words. He gives them the Ten Commandments. And he says, I'm going to give you not only these Ten Commandments, I'm going to show you how to live, how to flourish as human beings and how to have right relationship back with me. And then all of a sudden we see that kings come along and King David comes along and he gives him this covenant to King David. says that someday from your lineage, there will be a king that comes that his kingdom will never end. By the way, that has never happened in their history. It's never happened in our history. The idea of the kingdom of never ending, every kingdom ends at some point. But from David's line, there will be a kingdom that never ends. And then he gives them, a, uh, then he gives them the prophets, right? And these are, this is glasses, Right? And they start seeing what God is seeing and what he's doing. And the whole time, God is creating this path back to relationship with him by promising himself to this. And, and the key to all of this is we start seeing God show his presence more and more. First, he's speaking to Abraham as an individual. And then Moses comes along and he gives him a tabernacle. Tabernacle just means tent. And, and so everywhere Israel would go, they'd travel this tent with them. And so God's presence would reside. And so although the Israelites couldn't see it or be around it, they knew where it was, right? And so the high priest or Aaron could go and they could meet with God. And then David comes along and says, you know what, I want to I wanna build, uh, I want to build a temple, and I want to build it, and I want to have a permanent house for where your presence resides, and inside that temple, there's what's called the Holy of Holies, and the Holy of Holies is this place where God's presence dwell, and once a year, the high priest could go into this place, and so we see this beautiful movement, this crescendo of God saying, I want my people back with me. But what's so funny, if you read the Old Testament, is although God's covenant and his promises look like that, human experience kind of looks like this. Because no matter how easy he makes it, no matter how much he pursues us, we choose sin again and again and again. We reject it. And this, my friends, is where we find the Old Testament leaving off. It's this epic kind of breathtaking moment of pain and ache and when will we have this again? When will we see God and his people restored once again? And what I believe why the Old Testament took so long is we needed conclusive evidence that no matter how hard we tried, no matter what happened, we, listen to this, would never be able to get back to God. So the climax of the story is that God came to us. He came to us, and by the way, 
if you've ever been like, well, all, all religions are the same. You know, someone just saw a bumper sticker, like, God's too big for one religion. Can I, can I tell you what's different from what I'm talking about tonight, what's different from the gospel, from every other religion is this. Every religion convinces you of this path. If you do this, meditate like this, act this way, do these deeds, if you believe these things, then eventually you will get to whatever your picture of God is. What the gospel says is the exact opposite. It says no matter what you do, no matter how hard you work, no matter what kind of practices you put in place, you will never get back to God. So God has to come to you. And so when people say all religions are the same, I actually reject that so firmly because I believe that the gospel, grace itself, is something radically different than any other religion in the world. Because what our faith says is that we cannot get to God. God had to come to us. But in order for this story to go from pixels to a picture, is we have to see where this happens. And so, my, my friends, before I start talking about what this means for you in your seat, in your situation, we have to really unpack what did this mean for Israel? How is Jesus is the fulfillment to the nation of Israel's story? And because remember, we are Israel. Israel is just a case study of the human condition. We did everything that the Israelites have done. We do it on a weekly scale. We do it on a micro scale. But this is, this is our story as well. So I want to read you something. There's a, there's a pastor in New York City called Tim Keller. He's phenomenal. He's brilliant. And he has this thing. I'm going to read it to you. It's a little lengthy, but I want you to track with me. And what he does is he tracks how Jesus is not, doesn't only show up, right, thousands of years later. We see the, the picture and the image of Jesus again and again and again throughout the whole story. So just track with me here. This is what he says. Jesus is the true and better Adam who passed the test in the garden and whose obedience is imputed to us. Jesus is the true and better Abel, who though innocently slain has has blood now that cries out, not for our condemnation, but for acquittal. Jesus is the true and better Abraham, who answered the call of God to leave all the comfortable and familiar and go out into the void, not knowing whether he went to create a new people of God. Jesus is the true and better Isaac, who is not just offered up by his father on the mount, but was truly sacrificed for us. And when God said to Abraham, now I know you love me because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from me. Now we can look at God taking his son up, up the mountain and sacrificing him and say, now we know you love us because you did not withhold your son, your only son whom you love from us. See, Jesus is the true and better Joseph, who at the right hand of the king forgives those who betrayed and sold him and uses his new power to save them. Jesus is the true and better Moses, who stands in the gap between the people and the Lord and who mediates a new covenant. Jesus is the true and better Job, the truly innocent sufferer, who then intercedes for and saves his stupid friends. I love that line. Jesus is the true and better David, whose victory becomes his people's victory, though they never lifted a stone to accomplish it themselves. How good is that? How funny is it when you read the story of Goliath? Every sermon I've ever heard is how we can go slay the Goliaths in our lives. Do you realize in that story, we're not David? Jesus is. 
We can't kill Goliath. There are things we cannot conquer. And so a king had to come along and had to slay him even though we never could. We just get to participate in his victory. How amazing is that? This is just a few more. Jesus is the true and better Esther, who didn't risk leaving an earthly palace, but lost the ultimate heavenly one, who did not just risk his life, but gave his life to save his people. Jesus is the true and better Jonah, who was cast out in the storm so that we might be brought in. Jesus is the real rock of Moses, the real Passover lamb, innocent, perfect, helpless, slain, so the angel of death will pass over us. He's the true temple, the true prophet, the true priest, the true king, the true sacrifice, the true lamb, and the true light. This story is all about Jesus. All of it. From Genesis 1. To Revelation 22, it all points to this moment of climax, this moment of where the, the desperation meets hope, right? Where the death meets life. And we all find that in Jesus. And you may be asking, well, that's great for Israel, but what does that mean for me? Well, if you're sitting here and maybe you're in a place where you're like, well, I don't know if I believe this whole, like, Jesus is the Son of God thing. You know what's amazing about this reality? is our faith is not something that someone conjured up a couple hundred years ago. No, no, no. Our faith is deeply rooted in historicity. It's deeply rooted in this sense of God has been telling the same story. Just, just to prove that, did you know that in the Old Testament, there are 364 prophecies about this Messiah that was going to come? And Jesus fulfilled every single one. And so just, just to get our minds around that, they, they did the calculations of someone being able to actually do that, and they said it's a chance of one in a trillion trillions. And just to give us like a better word picture, I love this, this is a professor from Cornell University who came up with the algorithm to figure this out. For Jesus to fulfill eight prophecies, only eight, not 360, but just eight prophecies, like being born in Bethlehem in that right time, things like that. He says, this is the likelihood of you doing that. He says, if you took a silver dollar and you filled up the entire state of Texas two feet deep, and then you sent someone blindfolded into Texas, wading through the two feet deep of silver dollars, and they had to find the one that had an X on it, blindfolded. He says, the chances of someone being able to fulfill eight of these prophecies is better than you finding that one X to silver dollar. How mind-blowing is that? That this story that is being told is not just for Israel. This is for us to say we can walk confidently in 2018 in the, in the age of science and the age of innovation and reason and logic and to say our faith is rooted in fact and reason and history there's a depth to it. I love that there has been over 35,000 archaeological finds uh, in, in, the Israel, in the Israelite kind of territory. Did you realize, and this is from non-Christian archaeologists said, there has not been one found that has disproved the Bible. Not one bit. My, my friends, this, this, is, this is not blind faith. This is a rich deep heritage that we get to be a part of, that Jesus shows up. But here's, here's the question, right? 
We've kind of set the table a little bit tonight, but here's the real question. So Jesus is the answer, right? The gospel, the good news that Jesus came is the answer. So here's the question. The climax of the story is, well, what did he do? If it's all about him, what did he come? What did he accomplish? What is this 33 years on earth? How did that literally shape the entire human existence that to this day, 2,000 years later, there are more Christians in the world, professing Christians than any other religion in the world because some rabbi, obscure rabbi, 2,000 years ago had a message and a life to proclaim and demonstrate and it changed everything. So what did he do? So five things. We're going to have this up on your screen if you're taking notes. These are all really important. They, some of these terms might be familiar. Some of them might be new, but we're going to explain them. Incarnation, demonstration, crucifixion, resurrection, and ascension. All of these are so crucial to understanding what Jesus showed up to do. The first thing we're going to tackle is the idea of the incarnation. So the incarnation is that Jesus showed up and became a human being. He became, the creator became a creation so that he could better enter into our story. I love what John 1.14 says. Now, again, imagine you're an Israelite and you've been waiting and waiting and waiting, not just your lifetime, but your, your generations have been waiting for this. And John 1.14 says this, the word Jesus became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. This Greek word for dwelt among us, right? The, the God, the word, the logos, became flesh, and he dwelt among us is the Greek word for he tabernacled, eskenenso. And it actually literally means that Jesus came, and he set up shop. He built his presence here on the earth, And this is why this is so significant. If you're an ancient Israelite, you know that term. You know that term refers to the presence of God that has been taken away and given back and taken away and is fractured and you wish you could have it, but now you're under some sort of regime, some sort of powerful ruling government. And Jesus comes up and he says, I'm here, the one from the very beginning, and I am now tabernacling amongst you in the flesh. Hello. (laughs) I'm here, I've set up shop, and and now you can see the very real presence of God. This is massive proclamation to the nation of Israel. That he's not just God in heaven, he's not just the God in the Holy of Holies, he is now amongst us. The second thing is the idea of demonstration. And one of the things that we don't talk a lot about in the gospel is Jesus' actual life. We talk about his birth and his death and his resurrection, but Jesus' life and his message and his ministries matter so much because what he was doing is he was demonstrating for us what does it mean to actually live out to be human because obviously we failed and failed and failed and failed and failed and Jesus shows up and the first thing that happens after he gets baptized is that he's tempted. Isn't that interesting? We are actually watching Genesis 3 play out again, where Satan shows up and starts tempting Jesus. And what is the first thing he tempts him with? Food. He's retelling the story. And what he's doing is he's saying, I am the new Adam. I'm the new humanity. 
And he lives out this life being tempted in every way, understanding every struggle, every fear, every anxiety, every temptation, everything you're going through. He gets it. He's the only one who gets it. I don't get it. I know that in a room this size, there are pains and struggles I can't even imagine. But I'm convinced that Jesus knows them. And when he showed up, part of his life was to say, I get it. I get it. And this is how I... And this is how I'm going to live out this life. And it's so beautiful and significant. In Luke 4, I want just, just imagine with me what's happening here. Luke chapter 4. Jesus has just been baptized. He's just been tempted. And he shows up on the scene and he's going to give his first sermon. Right? He's going to give his first, like, proclamation. And so everyone kind of is, like, recognizing him now. It's okay, there's a new rabbi on the scene, and people are talking about him, and he got baptized, and, like, there's, like, a dove that came down. And... But no one really knows what he's about. And this is what Jesus does. He says, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up. This is Luke chapter 4. On the Sabbath day, he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, Unrolling it, he found the place where it is written. Now, now imagine this, right? So Jesus is coming back to his hometown. Everyone's watching him. He shows up in the synagogue, and someone hands him a scroll, and he unwinds it, right? There's no chapters, no verses. And he starts to go through and singing. It's like, okay, where's that spot? Where's that spot? And he starts reading a text from Isaiah that was written 700 years ago. But it's a text everyone knows because it's a text talking about the day when everything would be made right again. They know this text, but Jesus gets up in the middle, all eyes are on him, and he starts reading it, and this is what he says. The spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of everyone in the synagogue were fastened on him. Can you just, can you imagine? It's quiet. Like, did he just read Isaiah 61? And then listen to what he says. He began by saying to them, today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. The promises of the oppressed being free. These were oppressed people. The promises of the blind receiving sight, beauty for ashes, joy for mourning. The promises that Israel's been waiting for for centuries. Jesus shows up, has the audacity to read that scroll and says, it's here. I'm here. I am the resolution to your story. And I'm now amongst you. And I will live a life to show you how to live in the kingdom of God. I mean, this is absolutely revolutionary for anyone who would have come in contact with this, with this radical young rabbi. But he doesn't just live an amazing life. And this is where people get confused. He wasn't just a good teacher, my friends. He wasn't just some guy who had some good sayings. No, no, no. He came for a reason. And he says that that reason, the reason why he came in, and I quote Jesus, was to die. The fourth thing is the crucifixion. Let's, re- let's just read about the crucifixion just for a moment. 
Because this is the moment. I mean, this is the climax of the climax, right? This is literally the arc of the story where everything is at its, its, its heightened crescendo of a moment. Matthew 27, starting in verse 45, says, From noon until three in the afternoon, darkness came over all the land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eli, Eli, Lima, Sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing there heard this, they said, he's calling Elijah. Immediately, one of them ran out and got a sponge. He filled it with wine vinegar, put it on a staff, and offered it to Jesus to drink. The rest said, now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to save him. Do you see how historical this moment is for anyone watching? They know what's happening. And they were going to watch and see, is this the guy? And Jesus, when Jesus had cried out again in a loud voice, he gave up his spirit. At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. This, I I would argue, is the most critical moment in the entire existence of humanity. Right here. Everyone's deserted him. He's hanging on a cross next to thieves and sinners. And Jesus stands there in that moment and he starts to quote Psalm 22, David's psalm. And he starts to say, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is the only time in all of the gospels that Jesus does not refer to God as his father. Because in that moment, he decided to separate himself from the father as the father turned his back on his son. And in that moment, every Every penalty, every ounce of wrath, every ounce of judgment that we earned in our sin and in our decision was poured out upon his son so much that he let out one final cry and he gave up his spirit. The amount of anguish and pain pales in comparison. The the nails were not the painful part, my friends, as painful as they may have been. No, no, no. It was the severing of his perfect relationship with his father in that moment because he knew if I'm separated from my father, my children can be reunited with him. This is why in that moment of Jesus offering up his spirit, this same moment is the moment that that curtain that housed the presence of God was ripped not from bottom to top, but from top to bottom because God tore it open. But because Jesus finally paid for everything that had gone wrong, so finally God's presence could be poured out on everyone. Do you see how significant this moment is? Not just for Israel, but for the entire world, for us sitting here right now tonight, that we get to stand here and sing these songs, not because they sound good, or not because we like this, the melody, but because we are declaring that in this moment, everything was made right again because of what Jesus had done. And everything that was wrong, every penalty that was earned was poured out upon him because we decided to put him there. And Jesus, like he turned to the thief on the cross and said, Father, forgive. And they do not know what they do. It's the same thing that he's done again and again for everyone in this room. But what I love about this story, I mean, because that, if it ended at the cross, man, what a, what a beautiful thing. But it doesn't 
in there, my friends. And it took me so long to get this. Because if it ended there, he dies a martyr. But he doesn't die a martyr. He dies a king. Now, he's a savior on the cross. But three days later, when he raised from the dead, in that moment what he established, not just for the Israelites, but for the universe, is I am the king over everything, including death itself, must bow to me. He's the king. He's the king that they promised to David that his kingdom would never end. Now, are we, are we there yet? We'll talk about this next week. No, no, no. We're, we're in what's called the now and the not yet, where God's kingdom is advancing against a dark kingdom that exists here on the earth. But what I do know is because of what Jesus has done, we now get to experience life abundantly. It says the enemy has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but Jesus has come to give life and life abundantly. This is exactly what he did. And he did that because not only he died, but because he raised and he promises we get to participate in that resurrection with him. I love what 2 Timothy 1.10 says. He says, but now has been revealed by the appearing of our Savior Christ Jesus, who abolished death and brought life and immortality light through the gospel. And the last thing that we need to talk about tonight is the ascension, that Jesus not only raised from the dead, he went and visited people, he proved himself, and there's a whole other message in there of how he went about the next 40, 50 days that he had on earth, but then he ascends to heaven, and we immediately kind of forget what Jesus is doing. Do you know Jesus is doing something right now in this very moment? He's doing something, and scripture tells us what he's doing. Look at what Romans 8, 34 says this, who is to condemn Christ Jesus is the one who died more than that, who was raised, who is now at the right hand of God, right now, who indeed is interceding for us. How amazing is that? Right now, Jesus Christ, the incarnate one, the crucified one, the raised one, is currently right now in heaven, and he's not just sitting there hanging out on his throne. He's thinking about every single one of you, and he's saying, Father, would you just forgive them? mercy on them. I love what 2 Corinthians 5 says. It says that he became sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. Did you know that every single time God looks at you, if you're in Christ, do you know what he sees? He sees his son. What? That is, that is one of the hardest concepts for me to grasp. It doesn't matter how long I've been a pastor, how much I've read the Bible. For me to understand that God does not look at me with the least bit of disappointment. Someone needs to hear this tonight. When you think of God looking at you, you immediately come to the conclusion of what needs to change, what am I doing wrong? And what that reveals is you struggle with the reality that God actually says that you have the righteousness that Jesus had perfect I remember there's a moment in, in my life, this isn't in my notes, but I, I feel like I need to share this with you. A couple years back, I walked into a room, it was in an old youth building we used to, we used to help facilitate, and I walked into the room, and I don't know if you ever had this moment, but it was one of those moments where I felt the presence of God so thick that I literally had to like get on my knees. No one's in the room, it's in the middle of the day, there's no like cool music on, I'm just literally, it was like, it was like holy ground, like Moses taking off his sandals moment, I just get on the ground, and immediately, this is, this is literally my words, God, what do you, what do you want me to change? 
And I remember it's the Holy Spirit so gently whispering to me. He's like, why do you think I'm here to talk to you about what needs to change? And I just lost it. And I realized in that moment that I view God through this lens that he's like this coach that's trying to get me better and better and better rather than the perfect sacrifice. And when he looks at me, I'm already perfect. How radical is that? And it doesn't mean that God doesn't continue to want to change us and transform us. But what it means is he's not looking at us like, gosh, stop screwing up. Stop, stop messing up. No, he looks at us and he sees his son. And in a small way, I get this when I look at my children. Now, are there things that I want them to learn and grow in? Yeah, do I hope that Augustine grows out of having diapers? Please, Lord. But I never, I don't look at him like, man, hurry up, kid. I'm not frustrated at him. No, I, I lovingly and gently continue to enter that stage of his life because that's what he needs right now. And how much more the mercy of God in every one of us that he looks at us on the right hand of God, not with anger, not with correction or condemnation, but with love and mercy to say, all I see is the perfect sacrifice of Jesus on them. And all I want for them is to live the life abundant that he promised them and he demonstrated for them and how to live. This is incredible. If we can grasp this, if we can just go through these five terms again, I, I want to just, we've talked so much about like what this would have meant for the nation of Israel, but the reality is this story is not locked into a place in time. It's being told again and again and again. It's being told right now in Encinitas, 2018, February 11th, that God's showing up again, the same gospel that hasn't changed, but it still changes lives. So incarnation, right? Let's put this up. When we feel alone in our pain and our struggle, he is our perfect source of empathetic love. I don't know about you, but there are moments in my life where I'm struggling with something, and my immediate go-to is, who would get me right now? The week after we started Light Church, I remember it was like a Thursday, I'm driving home, and I just kind of felt heavy. I'm like, oh my gosh, what do we just do? I'm a pastor? Like, 32 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. And immediately, you know what I did? I called my friend Peter in Colorado, who is a young pastor. And I said, I'm like, I'm like hey, how do you do this? I, I want someone who gets it. You know what the incarnation is? No matter what you're going through in your life, Jesus gets it because he came and walked in your shoes. You want to talk about loss and grief? You want to talk about betrayal and backstabbing? You want to talk about fear and anxiety? These are all things Jesus encountered on a scales we can never even fathom. And so if you're going through anything, the incarnation speaks right now tonight to say, there is a God right now in this very room. His presence is here that gets you. He gets your story. The second thing is this idea of his demonstration, right? That he lived this life. So when we feel lost and without purpose, I can't tell you how many people, this isn't just for young adults, how many grown men and women I talk to say, I'm just trying to figure out what my life's all about. But you know what's amazing about the demonstration Jesus had is he is our image of a new humanity. 
My friends, if we just tried to live the way Jesus lived, you could be flipping burgers at McDonald's, you could be a nurse, you could be a mom, a student, it doesn't matter what you do. If you follow the demonstration that Jesus had in your life, your life will flourish and have meaning and purpose. I love this, the third thing, the crucifixion. When we feel condemned... There are so many of you who have a hard time coming to church because you're so afraid of feeling guilty, so afraid of feeling condemned. If you hear one thing tonight, would you hear this? That he is the picture of true love. He laid down his life. His sacrifice, his blood that was poured out was to have you back. The purpose of the cross was freedom, it says in Galatians 5.1. Hebrews 12.2 talks about that he scorned its shame, right? That the shame we feel and carry is not put there by God. Would you hear that? God does not put shame on his kids. We put it there. What the cross yells at our souls is you don't have to wear that anymore because Jesus wore it for you. You get to walk in freedom and life and beauty and meaning, significance because he took everything we deserved on the cross. His resurrection is so powerful because when we feel defeated, which happens to me like every Monday, (laughs) if I'm just real, there's just moments I'm like, what? His resurrection we can go to the next slide. Is he is our eternal and victorious king. He's our eternal and victorious king. His victory is our victory. He's welcomed us into it. Now, it doesn't mean that there aren't moments in our lives where we feel defeated or disappointed or we face failures, but this is why the gospel is so important here again and again and again and again and again because we need to be reminded that there is not an amount of failure you can face in this life that is bigger than the amount of victory Jesus purchased for you on the cross. It's so much bigger than anything you could ever feel defeated in in this life. So the next time you wake up and you're like, man, I totally blew it. Just remind your soul, but you know what? I'm victorious in Christ. I love that song. We're going to sing it here in just a minute. Your name is victory. Your name is victory. And the ascension, when you feel like it's impossible to move forward, if we can go to the next slide, the last slide here is this. When, we've, when it feels impossible to move forward, he is our sure hope. The story is not done. He is still enthroned. No matter how life may feel, no matter what you face, he is on the throne. And he stands there, not spectating, but interceding. It just means he's literally crying out, praying out for you. If you're alone, confused, guilty, defeated, or hopeless tonight, your one word is Jesus. 
It is not a system of religion. It is not a system of what you should do or act upon. No, 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 no. It, you can't do it. If you leave here tonight thinking I need to do better, you've missed the whole point of this series, the whole point of Scripture. The whole point is that you could never do it, but so Jesus did it for you. And you can leave here tonight free. All you have to do is say yes. Would you close your eyes with me? I'm going to invite the worship team to come back up. As you're closing your eyes, um, I'm just going to go ahead and pray. But this is, man, this is my hope. This is my heart tonight is that you would not leave here tonight with an ounce of heaviness or condemnation on your shoulders. But you leave here tonight. It, it doesn't matter if you're, you've been a Christian for 20 years, if you're just hearing about Jesus for the first time. It doesn't matter because every one of us needs to hear the gospel again and again and again because our default is to turn into a sort of system of religion and it won't ever work. We need Jesus, the person of Jesus. So as you close your eyes, I'm just gonna go ahead and pray. And if you would just pray along with me. Father, we confess tonight that like Israel, we have tried and tried and tried to make ourselves healthy, to make ourselves whole, to make ourselves feel purpose. And Lord, we confess tonight, it's failed every time. Jesus, we need you. We need you to forgive our sins. Lord, we need you to make us whole. We need you to make us free. Lord, we confess tonight that you are king. Not just of Israel, but you're king of our hearts. You're king of light, church. Lord, you're the king of San Diego. Lord, you're the king of the earth and the universe. Jesus, you are enthroned on high. And we love you so much. Help us to walk with you, to follow you, to receive your mercy every morning. In Jesus' name, amen.